Welcome to the show. I am Nathaniel Waring hosting once again. I am joined by Dan Torres and Matt Safranti, and we're going to start off local. We're going to talk about what's going on in Springfield in Ward 5. Matt, do you want to catch us up? Yeah, so last week, um, Marcus Williams, who was the city council president and the counselor for Ward 5, which uh, for those of you who know your Springfield geography is part of Pine Point and most of 16 acres, resigned. Um, there's no particular reason. He just uh, had a crossroads in life and decided that this was a good time to make some moves. He did. The funny thing was, at the, moment, at the time it happened, a lot of people thought the council would choose his successor. Instead, we discovered that the legislature had quietly passed a home rule petition that will allow the city to have a special election. So on August 16th and September 13th, Springfield will hold its first ever municipal special election, at least the first one since the current charter was adopted in 1961. I mean, for me, in terms of democracy, in terms of the will of the people and whatnot, I think this is a huge win. Um, I'm glad to hear the legislature took it up and did something about it because, you know, not that the other members of the council aren't to be trusted or anything like that, but just, you know, they don't necessarily represent the will of that your war because they don't work that way. They, so. they didn't like having the responsibility either. They had to do it last year to fill Adam Gomez's seat in Ward 1 because it makes them a development. Who, they're going to alienate people no matter what they do. Why would you want to be in that position? Yeah, there's no upside to that. It's not like they, 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 they do it right and it, like they get recognition. No, they're going to either annoy one group of people or another group or, or a third one. So I think this is definitely a good direction. And, and in general, in terms of future special elections in Springfield, I think it's a great precedent and it's a great, great thing that the legislature did. Do we know how it got passed? Was it just something that was part of some other bill or was it something that uh, one of the reps from Springfield brought forth. So after the whole uh, Gomez thing in 2021, the council passed a new home rule petition. The big thing about this one was, unlike they've been trying to do this for years, been trying to get this responsibility out of the council's lap. And also there's also another quirk that would allow the second second place winner that is a loser in the previous election become uh, the councilor. And they didn't like that either. So there have been attempts for years to fix this. Um, but after the Gomez thing, they passed a new home rule petition, which had the change happen immediately upon passage. Prior versions required like a ballot question. So this passes as a home rule petition. And like six months later, Angelo Cupolo files it with the legislature. And it was just been slowly puttering along for the last six months. And nobody had any idea. Oh, that's awesome. I, I love the, the you know, think of going under the radar of everybody. And hey, it's a surprise. Um, but a good surprise, to be fair. Switch, switch gears a little bit. We're going to uh, travel up, up the 91 corridor to Greenfield a little bit uh, to talk about what's going on in Greenfield. So the police department in Greenfield, just to catch everyone up who may not be having paying attention to this, the police department in Greenfield was sued uh, recently by one of their former officers who was going out for the lieutenant position and was, according to his plate, um, and which, which I should say was firmed by the jury decision, he was discriminated against because of his race, he was a black man, um, was not given the position, and the city was ordered to pay $450,000 uh, in restitution for lost wages and for suffering and all the other things that go along with that kind of thing. And then the mayor turns around and suspends the only officer in the department who testified on behalf of this officer and put him under house arrest for a while and then tried to like open closed court documents um, and it's just gotten kind of messy. There's been a lot of a lot of people in Greenfield on both sides who are rightfully upset with the mayor, rightfully upset with the police department. There's a lot of calls for having the police chief step down uh, and then, in in the wake of this, the city council in Springfield voted to to slash the police budget by over twenty five thousand dollars. So you know, th- there's all just a whole lot 
lot going on right here in our little quiet Franklin County town. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Greenfield, Greenfield normally doesn't get a lot of coverage in the radio stations here. Uh, maybe it did more when Chris Collins was around. It, it got a little bit more coverage. But yeah, uh, everything you said uh, is the way uh, the news is currently being uh, written in the newspapers and among uh, some people on the city council in Greenfield as well. It looks like there was a case uh, of racial discrimination against a police officer. He won in court. He actually won, if I'm not mistaken, it was around $450,000. It's it's around that figure. And, and it, it, you would think that that would be the end of it. And from my understanding now is the Massachusetts Insurance Agency that pays out in these situations. They are the ones who are now really in control of the legal battle that is now ensuing because they are the ones who are going to say, hey, we're going to pay out and we think we can win this case in the courts. Let's continue the appeal process. This is my understanding from it, from you know talking to people. And so I, I think that that's where we are right now is the mayor and Wiedergartner and others in Greenfield feel that when more information comes out, it will prove that the police chief did not commit racial discrimination. When will that information be released public? And it's a voir dire, I think is the name of it, which is a deposition given not in front of the jury. And so apparently there's this information that some people know about, but that hasn't been yet exposed. But when it does, it will apparently flip the current understanding of this situation. Now, I mean, though, about that. Yeah, that go ahead. The, the city council was the one who moved to have that testimony closed. And now they're the ones wanting to reopen it. And so it's mm. just weird why that would be the case. Part of what's going on in Greenfield also is that there's a lot of people who feel like the town should just admit that, that they were wrong for racially discriminating and pay the money out and not fight it because it's like you're, you're on the wrong side of this one, people. Like, don't, right. don't fight that fight. And um, also, I, there's some people in Greenfield fighting to actually make reform in the police department. And some want to, you know, reallocate resources out of the Greenfield police department. So, right. So there's really maybe two tracks in, in the changes, right? Some, some want changes to happen. They want a more diverse police force. They want more local policing. And others say, why are we even spending money on the police? We, the money should be allocated to other uh, departments and that will really, that will reduce the need of the policing, right? That That is, I think, the an accurate capture of God. No, it is. And I think it's also important to mention that this wasn't just a reactionary decision by the city council. It wasn't like the, the, the court case happened and they were like, rebel, 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 and made this happen. It's something that's been talking about for a long time. And it's supported very heavily by the fact that Greenfield was 30% higher per capita, the, the amount of money per capita they're paying for their police force than all of the other similarly sized towns in Western Mass. Okay. And so that was a big part of this. And and another piece of it is mm -hmm. the police department, after they were announced that the cuts were made, really went hard on trying to scare people by being like, well, we're just not going to have any patrols after 8 p.m. anymore. And we're going to do all these things. And even went on their social media accounts and, and did these like sad sob stories about how the police dogs are going to have to be disbanded because they can no longer afford the canine patrols. Um, it was very honestly childish the way that the police department reacted to this thing rather than having a, an honest discussion like, okay, this is our new budget. How can we make this? How can we make the public stuff be? They were just like, well, fine. If we take our money, we're going to take our police cars and go home. And it was really kind of honestly disturbing the way that the, the police department in general reacted. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things that you said uh, regarding the appeal. So the appeal from my understanding uh, is decided not necessarily by a political figure, the mayor, 
there, but it's by this insurance company that would be the one paying out in such cases. Not exactly in the purview of the mayor, but uh, maybe she has uh, a say, but I think it's the insurance company from my understanding of the situation. So here, here's my thing about that. If that's the case, if it's the insurance companies pushing for it because they're the, the, the money stakeholders here and the mayor is the one doing that, well, this is a perfect perfect time for the mayor to come out and say that. Wouldn't the mayor want to earn brownie points by coming out and saying, no, I, I agree with you completely. We should do the right thing, but it's out of my hands. It's mayor Wiener Gardner, and this is just my impression of it. It's nothing that she has shared with me. I think she believes that if the information is released in the deposition of that other police officer that was given, if it's released, that it will show that there wasn't discrimination by the chief of the police. Now, I remembered uh, something else that you said. You said one of them was put on house arrest, and that's the way the media had written about it. However, from my understanding of this situation, there was no house arrest. I don't even think they have the authority to do that. They were pay- they were put on paid administrative leave, meaning at certain times of the day when the officer would be at work as a police officer, they had to be home and answering calls if needed by the investigator. So it, you had to be you had to be on call, I guess, is my understanding. I don't so, know if that's the same thing as house arrest, well, meaning you can't leave your home. I mean, no, we have I, cell I get phones. What you're saying. Today, so. I get what that's, you're saying. That's what I heard. But, that's but what the I heard. wording of what he was ordered to do was not leave his house during his shift hours at all, meaning like he needs to go to the store. He can't leave the house. That's house arrest. And number wow. two, and the big one for me is that the two officers were put on leave. The chief who was mm-hmm. the one who had was, you know, shown by a jury to have not convicted because he wasn't on trial, but like he was right. on trial, but like, civil. you know, the, the, the jury ruled that he discriminated against this officer. He was put on leave. The officer who had the cojones to stand up for his fellow officer and testify when something's wrong, he was the one put on house arrest. The chief wasn't. So for me, if, if that was the case, if it was like, oh yeah, this is just standard procedure, why weren't both of them on, on that administrative house, whatever you want to call it? No, Unfortunately, no, no, no. though, we got to take a quick break uh, and we'll be back in a couple of minutes to keep talking about important politics. Welcome back to the show. I am joined, of course, by Dan Torres and Matt Safransky. Uh, and we're talking about what's going on in Greenfield with the police department and with the city council and with a lawsuit and with a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and Dan, you had something you wanted to, to say before we went to break? Yeah, I, in, we were talking about uh, policing in Greenfield and why doesn't the mayor get on the right side of this, which, look, I think there are a lot of problems uh, with the police departments all across the country here locally as well. And she has begun an audit of the police department, uh, an independent audit to see what needs to change. And from my understanding, she's looking at uh, in a, 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 either a law firm or an agency that that reviewed the police department in Albany. So, you know, I don't think Roxanne Wiedergartner believes that it's perfect in Greenfield and nothing needs to change. I think she believes that, you know, defunding the police is the wrong path to go uh, politically. I, I think that politically she feels that that's a losing policy uh, uh, in Greenfield. And I don't think she ran and I don't know this for certain. I don't think she ran to defund the Greenfield Police Department. She would feel, and you know, you can, can, can chime in on this, Matt, but I think she feels that the cost of cutting the police department will not be good uh, for her politically, but also for the city as well. I think she's not making this about a political calculation, although that I'm sure exists. But I think she's looking at it from, from Greenfield's perspective is if you have fewer police officers, if there's a call, how fast will the police department respond, right? If there is an emergency, emergency situation, a fire, or there's a 
major car accident, how long will it take the police department to get there? You know, if I look at this from a really local perspective, I really like what's happening in Northampton and Amherst from, from this perspective, because at least they're building an institution that will come into force that will, you know, attempt to reduce the need of policing itself, right? But they're building it slowly, gradually as a new institution. And maybe that's what is needed in Greenfield. I mean, I'm open to, I, I don't know, I don't follow Greenfield politics all that closely. I, I think we got a few different things going on here. Um, the first thing is that, I mean, I don't, it, however meritorious what Northampton and Amherst are doing, we have to remember that we are talking about relatively small communities that only have so much resources. And I don't think it's necessarily practical for a city of 20,000 people to have its own mental health response people. I think we're going to ultimately have to think about how can we regionalize something like that, especially when we're talking about Western Massachusetts, where we have a lot of small departments that benefit from something like this. Second point, in terms of like, you know, her speaking out, if there's a insurance policy that's in play here, it may not be advantageous to the city for her to cut the knees off of the case. I mean, I understand the desire for, you know, to, to, to speak to a, a, a problem that's out there, but there's a reason why even some of the most reform-minded elected officials who have a direct uh, oversight of a police department are careful about what they say in lawsuits like that, because it's not responsible to, you know, you know, gore the city for the, t- to the tune of several million dollars just to make a political point. And that's what could potentially happen because the insurer could say, well, you just killed our case. You go pay for it yourself. Sorry. And I realize that that's not something that people necessarily think about. But if that's not something that she wants to, she or any other elected official wants to deal with, then they need to think about self-insuring themselves. Um, and, and the final point I would make is, is that um, I, I think defunding the police as a statement um, is more or less dead for an extended period of time. But that doesn't mean that the underlying policy of it has to go away. I think that there's been way too much weddedness to this phrase, which doesn't even mean what the words literally say, that it really looks to something like Uvalde, I think, is an opportunity to talk about uh, what it is that we're getting for our money. There's a lot of emphasis to just shift money into mental health resources, but we, I know it's going to take a long time to build up an alternative. Why aren't we just asking a question like the audit that, you know, uh, Mayor Whedon Gardner is uh, pursuing can actually do? Are we getting the best out of our money? You know, and, and I think that's a serious question because, you know, the police shouldn't just get more money because we're scared. They should have to argue and explain why it's uh, useful. And you know what? Nine times out of 10, they're probably going to get it anyway, but they need to explain it. And that just isn't happening. And I don't think anybody, even the most ardent of, uh, you know, pro-cop people are going to have much of an argument against that because just the transparency of where this money is going can have an impact in and of itself. Well, I mean, I think it's also kind of ironic that the same people who would ardently defend the police budgets are probably also people who would call themselves fiscal conservatives. So yeah, they should be concerned about how the money is being spent, about where that money is going. Um, and it's actually exactly. something that was bothering me a little bit about what was going on in Greenfield is that after the, the you know, the announcement of the, the money being cut, the, the first thing the Greenfield Police Department did was put up a, a Facebook post about how this is going to mean that, oh, look, our poor police dogs are going to be, you know, are going to be out of commission because we're going to have to cut their budget. And not that, like, I don't think that having a canine troll is important, but these specific dogs, like 90% of what they do is ER for the police department. They get taken around to all these events, they Rules to then have the kids pet these big, big, big St. Bernard dog and stuff like that. And that's the stuff that needs to get cut. The fluff. But the fact that there's, there's police departments that have budgets in their budget for things like PR says to me that they have too much money. That's not the job of a police department to have a PR firm. It's not the job of a police department to mark every single parade and every single thing. Why are we spending money? Why are we paying doctors to do these things? It's a very legitimate question that we need to ask and we need to talk about in the future is what is their 
mandate. How is the money going towards the mandate? And what money is not going towards that mandate? And maybe we cut that money. And that's why I think that the conversation has to start with what are you doing with this? Not you're spending too much, we're giving you less. Because the, the thing is, that at the end of the day, this is still a political calculation. I mean, and you can, we can choose to be holier than thou about these things, even if we're right. But you're not going to win an argument that way. The goal is to, is to you know, get, make sure police departments are obeying the law and doing their job and to be good fiscal stewards of the public tax dollar. That is a non-ideological value. And the best way you accomplish that is to have a strategy that delivers on that, not just make a political point to make people who feel good about it put on Twitter. Agreed, Charlie. Dan? Yeah, I, I just want to broaden the conversation a little bit to what happened on uh, Tuesday night. The district attorney of uh, San Francisco uh, County, Chase Boudin, was recalled by voters. Very progressive DA. Um, it's a really interesting life story. I actually read his book when I was uh, in college. Um, he's a little older than me and uh, about his trips to Latin America. He's a fascinating uh, person. But there are forces going on, I think, uh, all across the country that are trying to uh, attack these progressive DAs. And they do, I think they have one advantage, the winds are maybe blowing in their favor, is that if you look at major cities all across the country right now, there is a major surge in gun crime. And, and what they've been able to do, even if you even if you counter with the data and statistics, right, and say, oh, the increase is not that large, it's coming from a 50-year low and the increase is, you know, not, not major, they're able to convince a lot of voters, a lot of people who might not follow things as closely and say, you know what, these progressive policies are failing our communities because we are less safe. So th there is an issue going on now. It's like, it's like a counter wave to the steps we've been making progressively. And I mean, this ties into the policing and everything that we're talking about, because, you know, this is sort of, let's reallocate some police funding. Let's bring in more progressive DAs. Let's not prosecute certain crimes. So then what's happening in San Francisco is there are major spikes in larceny in San Francisco. Go look at Philadelphia, which I know you've praised, Matt, previously on this show, but go look at their homicide rates and gun violence rates in Philadelphia right now. It's like the news stories that are being pumped out right now are that there's this major surge going on, and it might be coming from very low figures, and so maybe the surge looks higher than it is, and it's certainly nothing like in the 90s or late 80s, but what it's going to do is set up somebody like Larry Krasner, who you've praised, certainly a lot more than Chase and Boudin out in San Francisco, you felt was a little too disorganized and letting things go. Larry Krasner is going to face serious headwinds and political trouble. And what it will do is, I think, my, my prediction is it's going to reverse a lot of these progressive trends, especially when you look at New Orleans, other cities, Memphis, Dallas, San Francisco, uh, Chicago, New York City. It, it's like there's a counterbalance The difference right now is, is that Craig Krasner's already met that test. Yes, he won re-election in the city, um, what was it, last year, I believe? But like the headwinds have continued is my point. And they're now record levels going on. So yeah, he's met the test for last year in a political contestant. That's right. He didn't get recalled. But my argument is there are forces working right now against these, these progressive DAs. That's my point. And it's being very successful. I chase this one example, but you're also going to see it all throughout the country. They're going to start picking off uh, progressive DAs. That's my, that's my main argument. Even if Krasner got reelected already handily, he actually won overwhelmingly. It was a landslide. One thing I just wanted to just sort of counter with on this whole thing is it saddens me and sickens me how little respect these police departments have for what they're actually tasked with doing. Because when school district budgets are cut and teachers' budgets are cut, they don't just go, eh, okay, well, we're not going to teach the eighth graders anymore. What are you going to do about it? The, the problem is that when the police department's budgets are cut, they 
don't have an honest discussion about where's that money going to go. They go directly to, well, we're going to take away things that are going to scare you. No more. And that's what Greenfield did. Literally, the police department came out and said, okay, well, we're not going to have any police officers on duty between like 8 p.m. and or was it, 10 p.m. and 8 a.m. or something like that, which that's the time people are afraid. It's like, we're going to take away your, your, your security blanket at night, scare people into wanting to do that. And it, it, that what happens to these progressive VAs would be like a new superintendent comes in and the teachers are all like, oh, we don't like the reforms you're going to do. So we're just going to stop teaching kids until until the backlash is so much that you get get dragged out of office by by the people in town. Um, it's really honestly kind of uh, kind of sad and scary. I mean, think about like hospitals. Hospitals are constantly under under threat of losing budget and stuff like that. But doctors don't just go like, okay, well we're going to stop having you know treating gunshot victims. We're going to stop treating heart attack victims. No, they they stretch the resources as much as they can. They do what they can and, and, and they make it work. Uh, police departments just aren't willing to do that, and they're they're bloated. They're they are the, the highest paid public servants in in our system. I mean, um, I mean that that might be true, but I, what is the institution then to reduce what we're currently seeing in increases across major cities and and, and beyond just police departments, right? This involves COVID. It's not just the singular change that we've begun, you know, slashing budgets and all of a sudden there's a surge in crime, but there have been large spikes in crime across the country for the last two years, you know, and we could say what we want about, you know, reallocation or, or spending sources, but a lot of average voters are going to come out and attack these movements, or at least there's going to be a concerted effort to recall or to challenge a lot of these progressive DAs. And you're going to convince a lot of people who might be on the more moderate conservative wing of Democrats and say, you know what, these guys aren't good enough. I mean, my point in Philadelphia was the the murder rate in, in 2020, I believe was about 499. In 2021, it was 562. This year, it will be even higher than that. It's like at a certain point, people are going to start blaming you, even if it's not your policies that are causing it. They will just blame you for not reducing or containing. That's what I think. I'm just going to say, I think that we do have a real conundrum here because, you know, while I agree with what Dan says, we still only have a sample of one right now. And that sample is Jacob Boudin, who by almost any, there is the only way you can defend him is if you think the issue is more important than himself. I I believe, and I say this as somebody who was worried about him taking that office the moment he got sworn in, this was before COVID, I did not think he was up to that. And I think he proved that right. Unfortunately, guys, we got to take a quick break, but we will keep talking about this in a minute when we come back. And we are back from the break. Uh, Matt made some really good points before we went to break about how this is an isolated incident where maybe we don't back this particular progressive DA because he wasn't a particularly good DA. Um, and I think it's a good point, not just for this particular situation, but just general. The left and the right both just stop backing people on their side just because they're on their side. It's a big problem we have on both sides. It's it, you know, it's why you get horrible Marjorie Taylor Greene type people in the in the you know in the legislature, but it's also why you get people who really should be like defending Biden continue to defend Biden about stuff when he's just, you know, failing in a lot of ways. But back to the, the, the whole progressive DA thing, I think you're right, Matt. I think what we need to do is we need to say, no, this is not a this is not a failure of progressive policy. This is a failure of this particular person. And this particular person rightfully should step aside and, and get out of the picture so we can have better people come in. Uh, I don't think that that's a bad, a bad thing in general. And I want to add just one more quick thing onto that. Incidentally, Boudin's predecessor, George Gascon, was uh, is, is now the Los Angeles district attorney for, you know, reasons passing understanding. Um, 
Um, I think his mother lives in Los Angeles now. Um, and he's facing a recall and on grounds that are, frankly, considerably more ridiculous. I mean, part of the reason why, you know, I found Boudin to be kind of a, a, a pose was because he was proposing more or less what Gascon was already doing. You know, like it, it, it felt it had, there was a phoniness to it. Gascon was, to his credit, the real deal, you know, and he is potentially facing a recall. It's not guaranteed it's going to happen. It's actually a lot harder to recall officials in Los Angeles than San Francisco. So I think we need to start, you know, you don't have to like cower in fear. You have to start thinking strategically. How can somebody who has been doing this well, who, who did the reform well, and it delivered results in San Francisco, how do you help him not become, you know, the, the, the next blue dean? Because in, his, in that case, there really is a very serious problem with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, which is, I mean, San Francisco PD has corruption problems too, but the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department is worse in a lot of ways. How do you strategize now so that those people are held in place and and help them be better at what they're doing? You know, we can't keep fighting yesterday's battle. Yeah, go ahead, Dan. Um, I, I actually think that uh, an issue that we're not discussing about this is the power of media to, to shape perceptions and understandings of what's going on, right? Because even when I did dug in a little bit into the data in, out of San Francisco, the crime, yes, it's all it's up on major kind of violent crime, but it's not out of this world. But there are certain stories of, of individuals getting attacked, a lot of anti-Asian hate, right, that get kind of built out in the social media networks. And there isn't a way to kind of counter to say, like, this is uh, not exactly because of Chase Bedeen, right? It's like, uh, this is a policy that he was, you know, trying to answer, or, or at least to have the district attorney explain the logic of why something was used. And I'm only saying this because I think it's pertinent to other district attorneys that are progressive is you have to fight a media battle to explain your policies and how your policies are not contributing to what you're necessarily seeing, that you are seeing an epidemic in, in crime across the city, across any, all the major cities in the country um, right now. And it's not necessarily because of these progressive policies uh, that you know, Matt was just talking about. And unless we can create a counter narrative to it, you, you're allowing essentially one side to say, it's these progressives who want to get you killed. And if that's going to convince people of it, you're going to see a lot more recalls, is my opinion. It's, it's just my, my crystal ball. But I can only see, it just based off history, is people are not going to buy into progressive policies during a surge in crime in major cities involving guns, larceny, and, and all of these things. They're going to vote for the most conservative. I think that's where that's where uh, the trend line is going. That's what I'm basically trying to so, say. And I don't necessarily okay. disagree that you're probably right about the way the world is, but it's flawed. The way that the, the way the world is flawed, I mean, the big part of this is, is that there, there's such disingenuous arguments coming from the pro-blue side in this case, as though, so here's the thing, police don't prevent violent crime. I mean, they prevent a little bit of violent crime, but in general, they respond to violent crime. And so if you're looking, if you want to have a, an honest conversation about why crime is up, we need to talk about inflation. We need to talk about stagnant, stagnant uh, minimum wage. We need to talk about health insurance costs being up. We need to talk about all these things that are real contributors to crime being up because nobody commit crime because they found out there's less police on patrol. No one goes, well, I haven't been committing crime, but today, you know, I know there's not a cop on patrol, so I'm going to go do crime. No, people commit crime. I 
either because they're desperate or they're sociopath. Quick brief on that. I think this goes back to the audit thing, because, I mean, one of the things that, you know, it's true that, you know, police can't really stop a lot of violent crime, but what are they doing to solve the crime once it happens? And there's not a whole lot of conversation about the effectiveness of detective units or investigating. I mean, this is basically what the whole what the wire is about, is that police have been, you know, throwing all their resources into nonsense stuff. And to be perfectly honest, like most of the nonsense stuff that they're focusing on isn't even any of the crimes that people are worried about. I mean, yeah, it's gross that there's some areas where a lot of people, you know, might be doing drugs openly or whatever, but that's not necessarily the source of a lot of the problems. If we had more effective investigating, if we had more effective community relations, but those are the kinds of things that audits should be doing. And that's why I think that, you know, that's where the next step has to be is to change tack. You know, instead of, you know, talking about where we're going to put the money in order to do something different with responding, maybe we need to say like, okay, well, how does this work? Explain it. It's transparency. I mean, transparency is probably one of the things that police departments fear the most right now, but it's also one of the hardest that they can fight back against. In my opinion. I mean, well, they will fight. I've done enough public records requests to know that they will. But the, the thing is, they don't really have an argument against that thing. Well, and I, think oh, I can I can add something about the Northampton Police Department. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Do you want to say? Yeah, let me make a quick little point, and then we'll go to you. So I think the, the important thing here is that you're right, Matt. If we just cut the budget, the police are the ones who decide where they're going to cut that budget from, right? And they're gonna they're gonna weaponize that. They're gonna do it in a way that's gonna scare the voters into voting against that in, in the next election. But if we audit, if we have audits, if we have honest conversations about where the money's actually going, and then we find out that there's a hundred thousand dollars going over here that's really not useful, then we don't cut the budget. We cut that. You know, we have the city council pass a resolution that says exactly. the police is no longer responsible exactly. for that, for parade patrol, or for busting up homeless people under a bridge somewhere, or whatever it is that we decide as a society, you know, I don't want to be spending our money on that. That's where we go after that. Dan? Well, first of all, from reading the, the newspaper about Greenfield, if I can just mention it uh, again, um, there are specific rules when the budget is cut about who gets replaced. And this is specifically for Greenfield is, you know, uh, first one in, last one out. Um, so, um, so that will affect on pretty standard office. in union situations. In, in union in union situations. So that so that is part of the reason why this is going to uh, change. You know the complexion of the police department. If you believe in reform, then maybe these younger officers were going to be better officers than sort of those who have been there a long time. So there is the case for that. But I wanted to talk about police transparency because it's an issue we haven't discussed on this show involving Northampton. And this happened maybe a month ago. But there was a conversation about replacing the police cameras on. Uh, vehicles. And uh, there was a certainly a robust debate in Northampton among those who believe in defunding the police and reallocating resources to not replace the cameras. So, you know, Nathaniel and Matt are talking about uh, we need additional transparency. That's why the cameras were installed, to provide a level of transparency. And interestingly, the argument that a lot of people were making on the more, I don't know, more progressive wing is that the cameras um, would, they're, they're not helpful because what they'll do is they'll just make policing more entrenched in in local uh, police departments, right? If it's like you're going to have a camera, you're reforming the police, so it's less likely you're going to defund or get rid of the police or build those new institutions, uh, Nathaniel, that you're talking about, right? So it's like the more you reform and make the police better, the less likely you can build a political coalition to build a non-police response entity and unit, right? So in some ways, you do you're damned if you do if you do you're damned if you don't, right? It's like if you reform the police and you make it better, are you less, are you less or more likely to defund it? Right. And 
then so, the question is, yeah, go ahead. So that's a that's a very familiar argument to me because I I'm a democratic socialist. I was very involved in the democratic socialist for a while. I was a, a co-chair of the of the electoral working group. I was like all about like this is it. We're gonna get little Bernies all over the country elected. We're gonna do this. And then I discovered very quickly that there's an entire wing of democratic socialists that feel very very strongly that we should not be involved at all in the system. And that the more we can divorce ourselves from the system, the better chance we have of the revolution happening and overthrowing it. And if we get elected, if we run for office, if we vote for people, if we support candidates who are Democrats and not just Green Party candidates or not just Democratic Socialists, that somehow we are supporting and propping up that system. And I understand that argument. I understand the argument of the people in Northampton saying, if we reform it, we're basically saying it's a reformable institution where a lot of people would argue that the police departments, because they are in effect based on slave catching institutions from, yes. you know, from slavery is an unreformable institution. I get that argument. But my counter argument always has been and always will be, I'm 100% from about getting to be, be in this case being defund the police. In our case, it was getting Bernie Sanders or somebody like that elected president or whatever, or or, or the revolution and overthrowing capitalism in, in general or whatever it was. I'm all about you wanting to get from A to B. The problem is if you refuse to take the road from A to B, how are you going to get there? And for me, it was like, okay, we, we live in this society. We live under this governmental system. You can't change a governmental system unless you have power in that governmental system. And so the only way to do that is by trying to get progressive people elected to office and whatnot. And so it's a very similar argument, I think, this one in Northampton, where they feel like if you participate in the process, you're not trying to abolish the process. And I, I don't necessarily agree with that. Dan? That's interesting, because it, it makes me think of uh, the battle between conservatives and liberals back in uh, Europe in the 18th, 19th century, where there was a, a large discussion uh, about, um, you know, how to reform the systems back then, um, and, the, and the rise of socialism, right? And how that scared the liberals and conservatives, um, and sort of what radical politics. I mean, I think you're right. I think there's some people who want to get away from the system because they, they realize there's so many ills in the system, and they believe that the new system will fix all of those problems. But I think the issue that I have with the left, one of the main issues that I have, is we haven't spent enough time designing a better system. And oftentimes, when we've tried to implement previous socialist economic systems, it's ended up creating a whole set of new problems and repression. And we can kind of not talk about it. You know, there's so many people, and I just need to say this, and then you can cut me off. But there's so many people here in the Valley who are now in their 70s or so, and we're, you know, protesting Vietnam, and rightfully so, right? But I wonder how many of them ever protested the violence committed by the Soviet Union when they did invasion of Hungary in 1956, or in Prague in 1968, or in Afghanistan in 1979. And I mean, I could go back to, you know, Greece, and, and there are so many instances where it, them protesting, it would have made them look like they were pro-US and anti-Soviet. So thus they were in cahoots with the capitalist class, right? By criticizing the Soviet. And I know this is a totally new era, a totally different era than our current era. I'm talking about the Soviet Union and all that, although maybe it's not totally different. But like, that's my point is that like, we haven't yet uh, designed a better institution and we're sort of stuck in, in, in one institution and thinking like we can reform it. Well, people just want to escape it. Unfortunately, though, we are way over on time on this segment. So we're going to have to take a quick break and we'll be back in a couple of minutes to finish our conversation. 
Welcome back to the show. I'm Nathaniel Waring, and I'm joined here by Dan Torres. Um, and we're going to talk about something that's somewhere in the middle of local and international, and that is state politics. So a couple of things have been happening in the state in the last little bit. And one of those is that uh, there was a bill that got passed by both the House and the Senate that would uh, open up illegal immigrants in the state to be able to get driver's licenses. And the, the, the argument behind it is that these are people who are already working in our state that, to be honest, are in many ways the backbone of a lot of industries in our state and in our country who need to be able to get to work. And we want them to be able to get to work and we want them to be able to have a path towards citizenship. And, and it's hard to have a path towards citizenship if you don't have the ability to get to your job, don't have the ability to get to courthouse for your you know, immigration hearings and whatnot. Um, so I'm all for this bill. So what happened was House and the Senate passed it. Governor Baker vetoed it. Uh, and then the House and the Senate came back and were like, yeah, we have a super majority. We don't actually use it ever. But this time we are. And they came and they overrided um, Baker. And so it's going to go into law. I think it's July 1st, 2023 or something like that goes into effect. Uh, Dan, what do you think yeah. about all this? I think it's great. I, uh, you know, it's interesting that this happened in California a long time ago, right? And it, and it's interesting to me that I think um, in in Massachusetts it's been talked about, but it never had the veto proof until now. And I think, look, it's 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 part of the democratic process. I think it's it isn't. There's no surge in migrants who are going to come and work here just because they can now drive here. I mean, they're already here, right? They already have families. The the difficulty. Especially in rural Massachusetts out west, to get from one location to another, the amount of time you spend—I mean, it's an efficiency argument. Look, I, I, you know, I very much believe that the immigration reform that people talk about, you know, needs to be on a national level. You know, um, that's been debated for a long time, and, and what that will look like. Look, but there, you know, at the same time, the country also feels right now. Uh, some people do that. You know, there's a major crisis on the southern border. You know, there is a large number of people. You know, in Mexico asking to come into the United States, the, oh, the, the immigration system is overwhelmed by the number of people fleeing what is going on in, in Central America. And uh, yeah, go ahead. So I'm going to make a very bold statement that not yeah. a lot of people are going to agree with. Open the borders, 100% open them up, let them all in. Here's the thing. Yeah, Two go things. ahead, because I have more one, questions yeah. for you once you said oh, yeah. that. Number one, our country is built on immigration. Now, I could have a whole argument with you about whether that's a good thing or not, because immigration is basically colonialism with another name. We're talking about you um, Europeans coming over to this country and taking it from the Native Americans, which I have a whole problem with and we could talk about. But the fact of the matter is what made this country a hegemon, what made this country a superpower was not the third generation people living in this country at any given time. It was the first generation people with a hunger and a thirst for opportunity who came in this country and built it from the ground up. And one thing that's important to note is study after study after study after study shows that first generation people start more small businesses, work more jobs, do all the things that make this economy boom. And we're in the middle of, of a labor crisis, right? We are in the middle of a, of a time where people are talking about how they can't find anyone to work at McDonald's. Do you have any idea how excited somebody who's currently living in a tent in Mexico begging to come to the United States would be to work at McDonald's? Do you know how excited they'd be and how happy they'd be to do that? And that's the point. I mean, we have, we, we are cutting out a whole slew of people who want to come and make the country better because a bunch of people who are in the country already don't want them here. Yeah, I well, so there's a couple of things to that. I mean, there's also a, a, a bunch of rules. Like the United States does take in, I think, it's a million people each year, right? Um, from from all around the world, right? If your argument is let's increase that number, I'm in agreement. Now to just say open borders, you're creating, you're, you're, you might be solving one issue, but you're creating a new set of issues, right? Because there's labor competition going to happen in the country, right? There's also shortages of homes, right? There's also going to be, right? And that's going to increase pressure, right? If rent prices are going up and you increase the pop, increase the number of people looking for rent or to buy homes.
homes from Central America by by several million, right? What do you think is going to happen to home prices and rent prices, right? I mean, you 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 might be solving one issue. Oh, you're talking about the labor shortage, but you might be creating a whole new set of other pressures. I mean, there is an argument that they make in economics, and you don't have to agree with it. But you're going to bring in more people. What's that going to do in wages? I mean, the arguments you're making is oftentimes the argument that a lot of business big businesses love, right? Because they love to hire somebody who doesn't have documentation, right? Who won't argue necessarily for union wages or even necessarily be registered as an employee to go work. And they work hard. There's no doubt about it. But no, that's I think oftentimes what the, what the big business wants. You want to keep labor prices low. I mean, some economists I've heard on the left worry about increasing the supply of labor uncontrollably, as you might have mentioned. So, so here, here's my counter argument to that. Number one, companies want illegal immigration. They don't want legal immigration because exactly what you're saying. Illegal immigrants won't complain when their bosses don't pay them. They won't complain when they're being paid sub sub wages. They won't be on the payroll officially, so they don't have to pay them benefits. And they won't go to the district attorney and complain when they're not provided benefits that are codified in state constitutions because they're afraid they're going to be deported. If we open immigration, if we make it so if you're in this country, there's no such thing as an illegal immigrant. You're just an immigrant. There's there's no fear there. Why companies wouldn't like that? Companies would be like, wait, 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 wait. You're telling me we can't export these people anymore? No, no, no. They want that ex- exploitation. And I think the argument that, that these people are going to come in and, and like what it's going to mess up the whole supply demand thing really ignores the whole idea of them also bringing with them, you know, them, them, their labor is going to be offset by their need to, right? So there's going to be more demand for products, hence more jobs. And I think that the, the thing that, that billionaires really want us to not pay attention to is when we look at the country and we say all the people in the country produce this much wealth and this is where it goes. Do you think adding more poor people to that equation is going to make it worse? No. Adding more rich people to that equation is what makes it worse. And so the average immigrant, the average poor person produces more than they consume by quite a bit. That's where pro- that's where profit is. That's where that's how billionaires make their billions. It's not just out of thin air. It's taking the productivity of workers. And so if we're talking about adding a million more immigrants to the United States a year, the work those million immigrants are going to do is going to far outpace the, the, the amount of housing and the amount of the food and the amount of products they're going to consume because it's not poor people who are living eight people in a two-bedroom house that are causing a housing price. It's super rich people and their, their hedge funds buying up properties across country to make their, their, their cost skyrocket. Um, you don't, like this country, each billionaire this country support has to be supported by like 100 million or 10 million people in the United States or something like that. So if you add an extra 10 million immigrants, hey, the United States can support one more billionaire. Woohoo! That's, that's the thing that I think that, that those economists and the media and everyone is intentionally trying to, to push past us that somehow the immigrants are going to consume more than they produce in this country. And that's just, that's not even. Well, I think in some markets, I don't think it's across the board, but I mean, in some markets like housing, we haven't had a housing expansion or apartment expansion. And the ones that do get eaten up, like you were saying, by some big companies that then rent them out to you so you can never afford to buy them, right? I mean, I think there's there's going to be a, a supply demand shift, right? If there's, if there's two, three million people here and all of a sudden they need to rent places and they go to major cities where there's jobs and they can't find housing or now people who own housing are trying to rent to them, they can jack up the price knowing that there's like, you know, 500,000 new people who just entered the city in the last three years. So you would have to balance off everything you're saying with a massive expansion in housing and other things in schooling, probably hospitals, you know, new new subway transportation system. So you're right in terms of, you know, increasing labor is can be good in the long term for the economy, but the short term bottlenecks that I think the economy would incur would be severe. Unfortunately, our time has come and we do have to leave you 
for the for the week. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Um, have yourselves a great week, and we'll talk to you all soon.